hey, hey, and welcome back to the Buoyant Living Podcast. I am Nisha, your host, and I am so thrilled you're here. In fact, for those of you who've been around the block with me, you know it's been some time since I've recorded an episode. Oh gosh, and so much has happened. I am so excited to fill you in on all those saucy details. But first, I must remind you that this podcast is meant for informational purposes only and does not constitute therapeutic advice. For that, you must jump over to www.buoyantliving.com where we can form an official therapeutic relationship. For today, at least, I'm going to take the time to introduce to you the newest member of the team, Dr. Judith Samuel, in this series that I will call Meet the Therapist. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. And if you have some questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me at www.buoyantliving.com. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. It's so wonderful to finally have an opportunity to connect with you. I feel like um, it's not only for me, but also for the folks that we serve. And I think a formal introduction is so long overdue. So it's my honor to have you, Dr. Judith Samuel. And I know you go by Dr. Judith. So welcome. And um, yeah, care to introduce yourself a bit. Thank you. I am so excited to be working with Buoyant Living. Um, I've enjoyed it so far. My background is, uh, my first career, I was a professional dancer. Traveled all around the world, specializing in African diaspora dance. So dance of Haiti, dance of Brazil, dance of Jamaica, dance of Cuba, dance of Puerto Rico, all of that, all African-based. And I loved for years teaching people about their own heritage and helping them be proud in different ways. So that's wonderful. And then when I changed careers, I thought I was switching to an entirely new career, but I quickly learned that as a therapist, I had to be creative in millions of different ways. And sometimes it's just being creative to find a hundred ways to tell someone, to share the same information with someone. If they didn't really hear you the first time based on where they were, how they were feeling, you have to be very creative. And then of course, in my practice, I try to incorporate as many creative type things as possible. So we might play music, we might create a poem together. If you're a couple and you're coming to me to work on couples therapy, we might, I might have you all create a collaborative poem in the very first session to cement your vision of what you want your relationship to look like. And then it helps me help you better because I don't know more specifically what you wanna do. So I find that my initial career has been very helpful in um, shaping me as a therapist and in helping my clients enjoy the work. It's not always comfortable, but we try to also have a lot of laughter in as well so that we have some balance. Yeah, I'm I'm still um, stuck over here. As you continued on and you were talking about all the different spaces you showed up in, I'm just, you know, almost kind of mentally traveling to those spaces with you. And I'm thinking about all the rich things you bring from those spaces collectively to this precise moment now and even to buoyant living psychotherapy. So I know you began talking about the infusion of arts 
and kind of meet, you know, poetry and, and, and all the varying kinds of art forms that you bring into the therapeutic space. And that must be enticing for folks who are listening. Cause I, I know sometimes people think about art therapy, but even as you talk about poem and a shared poem and a vision for the marriage. Um, so all of that, and I'm thinking about how you quickly discovered that you brought all those things from your first career. And so it wasn't really quite a change. Something else that stood out for me when I think about being in the Caribbean and people who identify as persons of color, because as you know, it's a pretty diverse practice and the Caribbean is pretty diverse. But I think about all the places that you've been and I think about the migratory experiences that folks would have had just traveling between the varying islands or even from homeland, right? What, what we would identify as Africa and just sort of that passage that you've experienced. Do you care to share more in terms of, you know, how your, your breadth of travel and being connected to other communities, how that's led to, um, helping you to work within cultural barriers wherever we may find them. Can you talk at all about that? Yes, I, I think that um, it has really, because I've traveled all over the world and worked with many different people with many different abilities, uh, levels of intelligence or levels of education, ages, it has allowed me to develop a comfort level um, with people who are different from myself, people who are the same as myself. And it, it makes the world more interesting to me. So I'm always curious about someone's um, background and interest and culture. And when I say culture, I'm not necessarily just talking about, okay, so I was born in Tortola and I'm, you know, describing that. I'm talking about, about Tortola. Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. Name, names, city island dropping Tortola. <laughs> you well, I think, um, okay, where was I going to go with that? So I was going to say that it, um, I've, one thing I've really enjoyed about my practice so far is that it is diverse. And, but what I was saying about culture is, for me, every family has its own culture. Every couple has its own culture. Every person is embedded in their own culture. And so all of that um, uh, reading we did about in school about different cultures and different characteristics, all of that, for me, that doesn't so much hold water as much as me being curious and open with any client comes because I want them to teach me about their culture, whether it's their family culture or their culture culture. And it is, um, it enriches our relationship and it helps me really get to know the person without any preconceived notions or even any unconscious bias that I might hold myself. So I really work to be just open and fresh and new with each new client that I meet. And, and it's, it's fun. And I was, I was surprised. I didn't expect the, um, the, my clientele to be as diverse as it is. And I, and, you know, on St. Thomas on Island there, there is such a diversity of folk, which, to me makes things so much more interesting. You know, families hand down patterns just like they hand down money and jewelry. I tell my clients that all the time. And so a, a very important part of the work that I do, I digress a little bit, I hope that's okay. Yes, is that, um, is that um, um, we're all shaped by our early experiences. And um, no matter what, we could be connected with our family, we could be totally cut off from our family, but no matter what, those experiences have shaped who we are and how we move in the world. And it is crucially important that we look at that, whether I'm working with someone as an individual, whether I'm working with a couple or a child or a teenager or a whole family, it doesn't matter. 
it all contributes to shaping the people that I'm working with. And so, and when people can understand how some experiences have impacted them, whether they're positive or negative or little T's or big T's, as I call them, a little trauma of just maybe a very, very busy working single parent who didn't have time to do a lot of nurturing because they were busy keeping life and limb together. I even call that a little bit of a little T, a little trauma, because no matter the reason, there was some nurturing that wasn't able to be done because mama or dad had to take care of business. And so then there's some things to address in that. And, and <clears throat> by the same token, we could talk about big T's in which there's far too much of this, which is childhood sexual abuse. You know, there is a lot of childhood trauma, much of it, much of it sexual trauma. And I found that even in my adult practice with adults who come to me to help manage like the negative ramifications of some uh, adult sexually traumatic experience, um, dollars to donuts, um, they also experience childhood sexual trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I find that it's really helpful for us to look at the family and get people's ideas and understanding and, and their sensibilities about the way they were raised and their experiences. So, yeah. Every time um, I speak with you, I'm in just such awe and I, all the learning and the relearning that I, that I get to do even as a therapist. And we've known each other for quite some time now and our, our coming together um, has always been very beautiful and fascinating. And I remember um, you know, seeing you and co-facilitating a group with you and not only how you infuse all these things, but how you really embody the culture as you describe, right? Whether it's in an individual uh, session or whether it's with a family and how each of those sort of unique spaces come with its own culture and how you take the time to kind of learn that and, and the learning, right? As you talked about this newness, this ability to come to these spaces with sort of a, a clean, clear canvas almost, where people get to sort of depict for themselves, not only how they see themselves, but how their family of origin has impacted who they are and how they show up in the world. So as you were talking about that, I thought to myself, I've witnessed that. Mm -hmm. I've, I've witnessed you working in that way. And so, yeah, thank you for sharing that. I truly appreciate also the expansion um, and moving away from the, the typical way in which we would think about culture and really kind of infusing it. Because I think sometimes when I think about um, clients and they may ask questions like, well, is this person from the Virgin Islands? Or, you know, what has this person's experience been? And I think the way in which you spoke about culture as within each unique family pod and system, you know, I think that must blow the viewers' uh, minds and really expand their way of, in which they think about themselves and their unique families. So thank you so much for that. Um, as I think about some of the work that you've done and you've talked about family and family systems, because that's really what you're talking about. And then you talk also a little bit about the big T and the, the small T. I'm going to come back to some of that, but I just maybe think it's a good way to you know, start talking about your credentials and your skill set and how you've came into the work. Because as you know, we are all therapists, but we have selective experiences and clinical uh, credentialing. So maybe this is a good time to talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. Sure. So um, some years ago, I'm not saying how many, <laughs> I got um, an Ivy League bachelor's degree in sociology. Um, that was followed by a number of years, I won't say how many, <laughs> as a professional dancer. And then when I retired, I went to graduate school. 
I earned my master's and PhD from Florida State University, and uh, which was a rich, amazing experience. Imagine going to school after, okay, I'll say it, 30 years, mm -hmm. out of school and going back to school after being an artist for 30 years, not being a scholar or, you know, and um, who knew? I discovered I was a scholar. You know, barely remember getting through undergrad. That was mostly for falling in love, making new friends, learning about life. And graduate school was a different um, experience. I had a different purpose. I didn't learn until my last semester of classes that I was the only one reading all every word of all of the materials. <laughs> my classmates, because a lot of them had gone like high school, college, graduate school, and so they were younger than me. And um, <laughs> I, I remember them saying, you're reading everything. And because I was in school, I was self-motivated. I was in school, I was building a new body of knowledge. So I would say to them, yeah, I'm building a new body of knowledge. I knew nothing about this when I came. And so, yes, I wanted to read every word and I did, and I don't regret it. And the same token, some of them would say, who cares about a perfect 4.0 average? I'm like, I'm not doing it for they, like afterwards when you get a job, nobody's going to know what your GPA is, mm -hmm. whereupon I explained to them, I'm doing this for me. You know, it's just like how I view competition. I never compete with anyone else. I compete with myself to make myself better and better and grow and be more so that I can do more so I can do this healing work can come through me, which is my purpose on the planet. You know, and so, um, yeah, so so graduate school was fun. And then I did a very interesting fellowship. I, I um, was selected for a national uh, after a national search for a uh, national fellowship in families, illnesses and collaborative health care. And that was quite an interesting experience um, living in Chicago. <laughs> that was fun. Good food, good music. <laughs> um, and uh I, I really expanded my base of knowledge during that year because it was a combination of uh, me operating as a therapist, of course. Part of it was I was training family practice residents in how to talk to human beings. Imagine that, that's not part of their education and they really needed that. And also I took like a number, every week there were different seminars and courses that, that the, um, I was with um, Chicago Center for Family Health, which is associated <laughs> with University of Chicago. And um, they offered courses for professionals in the field. And so as an intern, I got to take everything that they did. And so I greatly expanded my um, information in a practical way, you know, which is adult learning theory. You learn things that have application to your daily life and it just makes so much more sensitive, engaging. And so after that, uh, and so then I graduated and then I uh, ended up running a teen girls program in Chicago where I, um, it was a leadership development program. I also provided individual and family therapy. And uh, we did many wonderful activist projects with those teen girls, such as, um, we had them create a video documentary on three generations of violence in uh, towards women in a Rogers Park family. And it is a beautiful, I had someone come in to teach the kids how to do editing, how to record, how to, I taught them qualitative interview procedures and um, uh, they did a wonderful, and something that wonderful that came out of it was one of the girls in my program, we selected their family and they were Belizeans. Mm. And her grandmother confessed to them for the first time that she had been sexually abused almost every night in childhood for many years by her father. 
And she had never told her daughter, who is my girl's mother's, or 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 the granddaughters. And the grand one, the I had the granddaughter interview the grandmother, and this was a surprise mm. that happened. And it was a very powerful moment. It had nothing to do with you know making art and making the video documentary, but that provided the forum for some healing in that family that had been a long time coming. And secrets, you know, family secrets are always so toxic. And for this to come out. It was a beautiful thing. And then they did it. one more project, I have to tell you, because I'm so proud of these girls. <laughs> they did a project because they decided what they were interested in. And so um, they decided to do a project on sexual harassment. And they uh, did, they created a, they did qualitative interviews. They created a choreo poem out of their analyzing the data from their interviews and um, choreographed and performed it. And they also, um, did it, within the choreo poem there, there was a dramatic piece and part to it and they did it for people in the community at a small theater in the community and it was quite an amazing project and they got invited to um they create to run a uh, a local radio show contest for um uh, uh sexual harassment a t-shirt Mm -hmm. And they were the ones who chose the winning t-shirt and the slogan. And it's they did that. And then they got invited to, we got invited to present at a qualitative conference, the International Conference on Qualitative Inquiry. So that was very beautiful for them to go to a professional conference and present. Mm -hmm. And these kids from the ghetto in Chicago who had a sort of international sensibility because there were Belizeans, there were um, um, Mexican-Americans, there were, you know, it was a diverse group that I had, but for them to experience that on another level gave them a vision for things that they could accomplish in their lives that they might not have otherwise done. So anyway, so I'm very proud of that. And then I started uh, doing, after I did that for about five years and ran a private practice, then I went into being a therapist full-time. So, that's my. Um, here you are. Here you are. Yeah, here I am. So I, you know, as you were talking, and it's so interesting how um, the work often happens for itself, and that we really are just creating a, you know, a, we are a container in a lot of ways, and we are oftentimes just creating. I won't use the term safe space, but I would say safer space. So we are creating safer space or soft space for people to come into contact with these experiences that are incredibly painful. And once that uh, environment is created, how on its own, just sort of um, sort of like inertia when we think about physics, that on its own, it just sort of happens and people are pulled and moved through healing, right? Just almost just naturally where you are just sort of um, witnessing and experiencing and creating constantly safe space, safer spaces for people to come into touch with that. So as you spoke about this uh, person who was able to share a family secret for so long, and I thought like, you know, just like you said, had nothing to do with kind of why they were there, had absolutely nothing to do with sort of what they were creating and all the skills that kids were acquiring, but it was its right time. And I think about in, in many ways, I think about sort of how therapy oftentimes work just like that. Um, this brings to mind also, as I think about a lot of what you've shared in so far, and you talked about trauma and all those things, I'm thinking also about community healing. And I think about, as I'm thinking about these, these beautiful persons who were able to go into the world, not only were they able to learn these skills, but also have a voice and advocate and show up in their communities in a very different way and, and 
from things that might have at one point, maybe for some persons been particularly painful, how they were able to cultivate what I would even refer to as um, post-traumatic growth right? Kind of being able to see themselves as resilient and capable and offer up themselves in a different way where healing was possible. So I, I truly appreciate you sharing the wealth of that. And I guess it makes me think about how you've for so long been doing this work, right? And how all the creative opportunities that you've brought to the full have really been an invitation for people to wrestle with things that would otherwise be so complex and scary and intimidating. Um, so you've spoke naturally about trauma, big T, small T, and you've also talked about sexual trauma, in particular, and, and just, you know, touching on it here and there. But I think this is really a great invitation to talk about that bigger work that you do and, and how you create a safer space for clients who are having to work on big T traumas, particularly sexual trauma. And I just maybe want to kind of also offer up the reality is this has been some things that our community, as you have said, for, for long times, and, you know, families have gone through this for significant amount of times, but there's been a lot of secrets. Here recently in the Virgin Islands, in our community particularly, there's been some things that have um, come out. Um, and, and I'm kind of trying to figure out how to best touch on this because it's not so much to create um, an environment entirely to, you know, um, to support or to question or to say who's right or wrong or to say what's happened because I don't know what all the details are. So I'm kind of going to stay away from that aspect of it. But I think it's important enough to say that the families and the community as a whole who's bearing witness to what's happening is deeply affected. And I think also what's um, interesting is that it's going to touch on the things that people might have experienced personally that may have been kept secret for so long. So I think this is a real beautiful space and time to maybe talk a little bit about, you know, your experience and expertise in working with trauma, trauma survivors, persons who've experienced firsthand, and also maybe persons who um, now have to maybe deal with the fact that their children or someone that they love or are connected to have been affected deeply. Can you share a little bit about what a therapeutic experience might look like? Sure, uh, um, before I, go there to that specific, I would like to say that I've worked with um, in community mental health, which is sort of going to foster homes or going to people's homes and doing therapy in their homes. And many, many of those children, I did it for the child and adolescent population. And many, many of those children had experienced sexual trauma. And so, and then also I worked um, with um, military, with veterans for mm -hmm. 10 years. And there is an astounding amount of military sexual trauma is what they call it, which I'm very happy that it's finally taken out of the hands of the military to investigate now. And so there is a lot of that. And that happens, of course, to men and women, just as childhood sexual trauma happens to boys and girls. And then, of course, in my private practice, I've worked with clients who have been date raped or um, had childhood sexual trauma and they were working through it. And so I've worked sort of with the gamut of survivors, I don't call people victims. I do, we do acknowledge that they have been victimized because that's what the predators do. Mm -hmm. However, I do not allow <laughs> sort of that self-concept of victimization. And one of the things that often happens when someone has experienced that type of trauma, whether it be in childhood or adulthood, is that they blame themselves. If I had worn something different, I should have known that man wasn't safe. I was six. Why didn't I tell him to stop or her to stop? 
there were, you know, and so to help people understand um, that these, what we, in our jargon, we call it cognitive distortion, right? Mm -hmm. To understand that these ideas are not truth, but just merely ideas that people have incorporated into their way of being and moving in the world. And, mm -hmm. and how it shows up is why we need to work with it because it shows up as uh, being engaged in relationship after relationship that is toxic or where someone is emotionally unavailable to you or physically unavailable to you, or it shows up in a self-abuse with cutting or um, um, uh, 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 eating, overeating or overspending or any of those types of impulsive behaviors to try to feel better in the moment it never works long-term. And so what we do is we help people work through the ramifications, the negative emotional sequela in our jargon of these types of experiences. So I might take uh, one of several approaches. There are several evidence-based treatments that I like to use that work particularly well with sexual trauma of any type. And one is EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which I love. I call that sort of um, uh, a bottoms up um, uh, approach in a way. Um, it's a little more, it's more visceral in some senses than another approach that I like to use as well, which is called cognitive processing therapy. And that one is a 12 week protocol. And that one is specifically designed to help train people to address those, that stinking thinking as AA calls it, or that, uh, which reminds me the other ways people abuse themselves is substance abuse, mm -hmm. you know, drugs and alcohol or gambling or anything. So these are the ways it affects you. It has nothing to do with it doesn't look like the trauma, but it certainly is an outcome of that. And so um, we use these evidence-based treatments. And then if people are not ready, or I find that, well, the CBT, let me just say cognitive processing therapy, I think of that as a top-down one because it is a cognitive approach. It's not all that visceral and it works well for some people depending on how they um, think and process. So, and then I have what I call Dr. Judith's five-pronged approach, <laughs> which I sort of codified after I created it out of experience of working with many sexual trauma survivors. I was like, oh, this is what I'm doing and this works. So the five prongs are, so you first, of course, I wanna know what happened. I don't demand that people repeat it over and over again. I don't think that that's productive. Um, so I have to know what happened just one time. We explore um, the immediate, which is symptoms. What's showing up? Are you gambling? Are you in terrible relationships? Are you um, having sex with four or five different people at the same time and unprotected sex? Are you doing things that are hurting yourself? We look at, are you able to sleep? We look at present day symptoms. Then we look at um, family of origin experiences because you know it, whether or not it happened occurred within the family of origin. Again, as we said, we are shaped in those ways. And then we look at, I do some type of somatic piece because that seats, I wanna seat people back in their own bodies. I want them to be able to reclaim their physicality. And we, depending on the person, with some people, I've done it with dancing. We get up and we start spontaneously dancing in session. I'll put on some soca music or something. With others, um, we might do um, a body scan meditation. With others, we might do EFT, which is called, or tapping, which actually hits these acupressure points, this is a demonstration of it, that actually makes changes in the brain chemistry that helps people self-soothe. And so I do a somatic piece. 
uh, and then the last and most important piece, and I don't save it to last, it's, all of these pieces are integrated together as I'm doing treatment. But for me, the most important piece is the boundary piece. So because um, sexual, any, sexual trauma, physical trauma, these are all emotional trauma. These are all boundary violations. And when people's boundaries have been violated, especially so early on in life, um, they have difficulty recognizing, uh, creating and maintaining healthy boundaries with others. So what do we mean by boundaries? It's like where we end and where others begin. So um, an important part of boundary work is, uh, are we okay with time? We are, yes, okay. yes, no, so no. The important part of boundary work is, sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. Deciding who gets to be this close to you, oops, working with the camera, who gets to be this close to you, who gets to be this close to you. And oftentimes people who have had their boundaries violated and don't understand how to do that will have very toxic people right here and where they can do more and more damage or the people can do more and more damage to themselves. And so identifying that piece and also, um, what don't you like? You get to say no to people that you love. You get to have your own opinion about something that's different from somebody who you might admire or somebody who you might be a little afraid of. You get to make choices about your own self and your own life. And um, uh, around the boundary piece, and, and so that's a wound that happens. And that is really important to repair that by way of teaching people how to do that. Teaching, what is a healthy boundary? You know, what do I recognize? Do, do you interact with someone who interrupts you all the time? Well, that's a boundary violation, maybe akin to a little T. You know, it's not them punching you in the face, but it certainly is them being disrespectful of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And so helping people understand how it shows up and respond to it rather than react, because I make a distinction between those two, two, because reacting is like going off or getting mad or walking out or uh, not speaking to them ever again. And that's reacting and responding is taking time, saying maybe sometimes, you know what? That's really important. I need a minute to think about it. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about this later on today? You know, taking time, responding is stopping and thinking and leading with empathy. That's what I call it. If you try to think first about, okay, where are they coming from? And so that helps one not feel attacked. If you lead with empathy, then you can kind of first be, you begin with, okay, what, what are they trying to get out of this encounter? What do they need? Or what's going on with them? Did their dog die yesterday? You know, did they have a difficult day at work? And is that sort of driving their posture and their tone of voice? It might not have anything to do with the listener. And so all of that is boundaries. All of that is helping people understand what that means and how to implement it in their life. And it's amazing, very difficult to do with parents. Uh, if you're an adult child, the adult child of you know your parents, uh, that's one of the hardest things to do. And yet I've observed time and time again that people can make progress and have growth in that area. And it makes an astounding difference in the way they interact with others in the world. So yeah, so that's Dr. Judith's five-pronged approach. So based on the client and where they are and what I think their sensibilities are, what they tell me they like or the way they like to work and how I perceive the way they process, I will select one of those ways to address this type of trauma. And I really 
I really appreciate that you have so many different things in the toolkit because I think, um, and, and you described it very well between a top-down approach and that's cognitive processing therapy and beginning more so leading in, in terms of the mind and the thoughts. And then you talked about the bottom-down, bottom-up approach, which is EMDR. And then you talk about the five-prong approach, which is this sort of eclectic blend of all the essentials that needs to happen or needs to be included. I especially appreciate just sort of reseating people in their bodies because I think oftentimes um, when boundaries have been violated, persons are not entirely sure that the, a boundary is being violated. They may not necessarily recognize it. They may experience discomfort in their bodies and there's all the physiological cues that you know they may be finding themselves pulling back and doing a number of those kinds of things or um, finding themselves like you know constantly maybe clearing their throat as in they're having a hard time articulating or expressing. And so I think oftentimes receiving people in their bodies or helping them to identify kind of what's going on in their bodies, where it's showing up for them. I think it's such a helpful tool and they can lead through sort of that visceral experience. Um, so maybe walking into a room and recognizing like, you know, they're not feeling very good or there's a heaviness on their shoulders because sometimes people aren't really quite able to language, you mm -hmm. know, sort of right comes later on. Sometimes depending on when the trauma experiences have occurred, there's not a whole lot of language around. You might actually find yourself, you know, sitting with persons for an incredibly long time before they even able to voice or give voice to what has happened. So I appreciate, um, you know, your approach and the eclectic blends of, or the varying tools and your particular eclectic blend um, to kind of work with folk. And I, and I trust from what you're saying very well that people are able to um, select and be informed. And, and I really appreciate that because this interpersonal relationship as you create with the client is one where they get to practice and rehearse and show up in ways in which it can kind of repeat in the outer larger world that sometimes might be scary and intimidating. So a lot is happening in that therapeutic space, right? Um, and, and you were able to eloquently just sort of succinctly say so much, but I think um, I, I truly just appreciate that. And I, I think you've given a, a good breath, you know, as far as how it's treated and what it looks like. So I guess the next question that I have for you, what is your favorite kind of work, right? Because I think we are all, um, drawn to different types of clients. I think, um, uh, I think that's natural. And I think we, we have, I, I, I won't say our favorite client, but our, our least and most favorite type of work. And I truly appreciate that as in being in a group practice, particularly because I, I do not like the approach of someone, let's say coming in and whichever therapist is available versus what is your strength? What work you enjoy doing? right? Because we have to think also about um, compassion fatigue and burnout for clinicians and those kinds of things. And being able to hold a space for clients and, and balancing even caseloads. Like, so how many trauma survivors are you working with at one given time so that you can bring your best self to that work each and every time? So I think it, this might be a good place to kind of talk a little bit about the work you enjoy doing, um, the work you're pretty lit up about, how you enjoy healing right along with your clients. You want to say something about that? I love that. I, I have this work that I coined claim your throne work. And that's like some of the most favorite work that I like to do. And this, it could be males or females. It could be young people or adults that, um, you know, over the course of our lives, many of us have experiences that damage or threaten our self-concept, right? Again, in ways small and large. So that dismissive tone from a mentor that you admire or a raging alcoholic partner who's terrorizing the home. 
or simply, as I mentioned before, the benign neglect of overworked parents. I mean, sometimes it's just circumstances that cause some wounds, but these experiences can lead to a deeply held belief in sort of one's own undeservingness. So, especially when these interactions happen in childhood, right? So you can imagine any area of life can be affected. So your health, are you skipping medical appointments, mm -hmm. right? Um, your career, are you enduring sexual harassment from a colleague or being asked to do other people's work and just accept, and again, that's not about healthy boundaries. And again, then again, accepting it and doing it because you need a job or you don't feel that you can say no or ask for more and then in relationships like are you remaining with a partner who is unable to prioritize your needs now and again it doesn't have to be extreme violence it just has to be a partner who is maybe is a partner who's out there interacting with if you're a woman with a hundred other women or or if you're a man with a hundred other men and then that's is that what you want in a relationship you know and so um it affects any area of life. And I love engaging with folks on their journey to overcome these negative beliefs about themselves. themselves. And the claim your throne work can be through any, you could have any type of experience and work on it. So it's not necessarily trauma work or, you know, self-esteem work or all of that stuff, but it just is about yourself and figuring out how to um, ask for what you deserve mm -hmm. in, under all circumstances, even from yourself right? Asking of yourself. I had a client uh, when I was living in Chicago. Amazing. I worked with her years ago and she had a polytrauma history. It was very dramatic. Her mother was um, an unmedicated, a diagnosed but unmedicated schizophrenic. She had five children. They were homeless multiple times. Anyway, when I met my client, she was in her thirties. And at the end of our work together, it took four years, but at the end of our work together, she said to me, Dr. Judith, can you believe I wouldn't even buy myself a winter coat when we first met? Okay, people, we're talking Chicago. That's real winter. That's real winter, right? And so she said, it seems unthinkable to me now. And so that just was exciting to her and probably even more exciting to me. But she really um, inculcated into her sense of self and way of moving in the world that she is deserving. She even owned seven homes at such a young age because she was so determined never to be homeless ever again. And well, I, I'll never forget the day she came in towards the end of our work together. She said, you know what? I'm selling five of my homes mm. because she realized that she realized that, you know, she had them because she was making sure she would never be homeless again, but she didn't need them. And she, um, so she kept one for income production and one for the family to live in. And um, to, again, this is evidence. She came up with that herself. I didn't say, you know, you don't need all those homes. You know, what is it really bringing you other trouble? I didn't say any of that. Mm -hmm. We just worked on her stuff and she came to that herself. And, you know, she had three, she had three wonderful kids. And so she would justify the not having a coat is, you know, I got to buy for the boys. I have to get the boys something. But the fact that she recognized that she was a linchpin and that if something happened to her, what was going to happen to her children? Mm -hmm. And also that she just deserved that. Mm -hmm. You know, she had also become a sexual predator of her in her own right, in a way like she used to go out to clubs and pick up guys and take them to the parking lot and then dump them. And then they wanted to like see her again. And she'd give them her number, but she'd never answer the phone. And that was her becoming her own perpetrator in a way too, right? Mm -hmm. And she'd had so many 
perpetrators in her own childhood of sexual trauma, brothers, uncles, friends, you know, imagine in a family with such chaos, anything happened. So anyway, so to me, she is like the ultimate um, uh, success story with the claim your throne work because she yeah. truly claimed her throne and she's doing really well. Um, Cause actually she reached out to me this year like about six months ago. It was, it was wonderful to hear from her cause my numbers remain the same. So that's um, the claim your throne stuff. I really love it. I really like the broadened perspective the broadened, the greater insight about herself and the productive emotional regulation sort mm -hmm. of that comes out of claim your throne work. And so um, emotional regulation is an important piece. That's not let you, yourself being ruled by feelings, mm -hmm. uh, you know, good or bad, but then you have the balance of the thinking and your emotions and you're able to do that. And so that kind of, so that's work that I love. And one way that I'm sort of doing it right now, oh, well, never mind. Let me just go to other types of work that I enjoy. So I love that. I do really enjoy working with sexual trauma survivors. Um, it became a specialty because I discovered when I, just from the very first week of graduate school, um, when we start, when I started seeing clients, it was always a part of the history for almost every female client and many of the male clients, even if that wasn't the presenting issue. And so I, it, it was shocking to me because I'm lucky enough to not be a survivor of that type of violence. And um, the one in four numbers that are noted in most stats are not correct because those are the ones that are reported. Most of the people I've worked with over the course of my career as a therapist have, it's been unreported. And so we know the numbers are much higher. It's way more common. And so I really like doing that work. And I love helping people address the ways, the, the, the ramifications of that experience, the way it shows up in their life present day. It's so exciting to me. So I like that work. And then um, something that I found, um, we talk about culturally fueled microaggressions, right? These days we talk about microaggression in terms of sort of the black white uh, relationship and context of that history. However, we don't talk so much about our within group microaggressions. And, um, you know, I encounter trauma every day within the context of my work. So combat trauma, sexual trauma, the trauma of loss, of all kinds, but those are the biggies. They get noticed, they get attention and support, but it's the smaller, less visible traumatic things that occur that also have powerful lifelong effects. For instance, how many of, how many women of color have been told, oh, you're pretty for a dark girl mm. or, um, oh, you, she has good hair or he has good hair and I like them. What the heck is good hair and bad hair? I was astounded being a child of the 70s. Whoops, I didn't mean to say my age, but um, that was hoping that we had long evolved out of that within group. So these within group microaggressions and communities of color really break my heart because that's us not loving ourselves and that's history. And, um, and the privileges that accrues to a lighter skinned person of color still. All right, so I am, I'll stuff self-disclose, I'm Jamaican. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I see that within my own family mm -hmm. because my grandmother has um, had a sister who was the color of whatever white you have around you. 
and and she had another sister who was chocolate, 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 chocolate. They looked exactly alike in the same family. And, and so uh, we, I, it breaks my heart when parents bring their children in because they've said, well, daddy, why isn't my skin white like my classmates? Mm-hmm. Or I don't like my hair anymore after going to an integrated school. This is, um, or adolescents acknowledge what an attack on their confidence confidence it is to hear negative comments about their nose, their hair, their butts, okay? And so the truth is that hundreds of years of enslavement during which privilege provided to lighter skinned, more European looking children of slave owners and the enslaved strongly influenced cultural preferences among diverse people of the African diaspora. I mean, that's just the truth. Um, I hate it. You know, during my dance career, it was one of my prime directives to sort of relieve people of of some of those by demonstrating the richness and the beauty of the culture that they came from. Mm -hmm. Like slaves didn't come from the African continent. People, farmers, artisans, priests, um, dancers, drummers, um, healers came. And, And so the way the history is taught that's neglected. And so I love that in my first career. And so the way it shows up today is reflected in those negative within group sort of um, toxicities that we have. It just hurts so much. So the question is, what do we do about it? How do we protect our youth and support adults for whom this remains such a lingering toxic issue? And frankly, quiet as it's kept, that's all of us, even among those who are woke, you know, you, yeah, still, yeah. you still find yourself surprisingly, mm-hmm. surprisingly affected by that, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, what I've, I found a way to address it, I think it, it's on an individual or family basis or something. And, and I'd like to do some more research about it to see how it works, but it has helped with my clients. So first, what I do, and I did this even in my dance career, is I set the historical t- context, which I just mentioned, so people understand, um, followed by a realistic assessment regarding the persistence of these beliefs. So that might even be me saying, you know what? You may encounter people for your entire life who say, ooh, mm-hmm. your lips are big, mm-hmm. or something, oh, you are pretty for a dark boy or a dark girl. That may never go away. And so being realistic about that, right? And and helping them. So um, regarding the persistence of those beliefs so that people don't take it in as their own personal negative whatever, right? And then setting the context takes the issue out of the realm of the personal, which is really helpful Mm -hmm. because then it becomes, it's over here we can discuss it, you can talk about it and we can process it more. And and perhaps in small ways, the people are less affected. So authenticity authenticity regarding the fact that they may encounter it over and over again um, helps with the perspective again. And so then we shore up each person's sense of self, self self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is that belief that I can do it, whatever the it is. I can drive, I can swim, I can fly, whatever it is um, that people have different beliefs about whether or not they can accomplish something based on their beliefs about their own competence in that area, right? And so we shore that up and then we can prepare people regardless of their age or circumstances to create the best lives they envision for themselves, which is the ultimate goal, you know, while supporting them and being less negatively affected by the external, 
Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, we uh, to me, it is a really important part of our work as therapists, as human beings, as a woman of color. It is very important to me to effect that community level healing. And so, you know, we can join together to support ourselves, our youth, our community in generating like higher levels of self-love. That's what we gotta do. So anyway, so that's the type of work I love to do. I enjoy um, helping couples uh, work through stuff and, and families too. Um, I would say that I am not particular, never been particularly interested in doing addictions work not my purview. You know, we all know other people like I, I, my, I have a friend who is a pediatric oncology social worker. And I say to her, I could never do that. Children with cancer, I could never touch that. And she's like, uh, trauma, I could never, you know, and she's like, that's not her work. And so we, we find, we find what fits, we find what we love. And, and interestingly enough, it seems like there's an organic process where those clients tend to Find to us yeah they mm -hmm. do they really find us and so i don't know did i say enough about uh, what i like and oh gosh you did i actually was taking a little bit of notes on my end because i wanted to be sure that i came back full circle to some of the things that you talked about yes and if there's anything else that you want to share i love group work too i'm sorry i interrupted <laughs> you see i talked to boundary violations <laughs> you are fine this is your space this wow. is really your space um i, love I group work i think it's really important I, I regret that right now we all have to sort of do it uh, remotely, but, uh, you know, finding ways to make it juicy and fun and as experiential as possible, even though we are remote, is an interesting creative challenge. So, um, yeah, so I enjoy groups very much. They're fun. Anyway. And no, no, no. Thank you so much for that. Um, as I, I'm really happy at the tail end, you tacked on, you know, um, what's your least favorite work, um, you know, and because as, as I was thinking about everything that you mentioned, it was such a wide breadth of, of work uh, that I thought, oh gosh, this covers just about like everything, right? And I know it doesn't truly cover everything, but but I think in, in many ways, you know, um, it's such an integrated experience that people have and how it may show up in childhood when we think about developmentally appropriate work for children who may be, um, who might have experienced, who may have experienced um, a tra traumatic history as it relates to sexual trauma, for example, you know, what that might look like and having to maybe join with a therapist later on in their adulthood or even in adolescence. Um, you know, what it may look like at varying points, and then how they come to understand themselves. As I was thinking about, um, I almost feel like all these things are so integrated when someone starts with uh, sexual trauma work, and then maybe at some point, um, you know, those sort of inner group uh, uh, microaggressions that you've spoken about, and kind of maybe the sense of worth and how that all plays out, and then ultimately culminating into this sort of claim your throne, right? And so when you now have set boundaries, and by the way, I'm not sure if you're muted. All of a sudden, oh, I'm muted. No, I'm just saying yes. I'm oh. just agreeing with you. Yeah. Oh, no worries. No worries. I um. So then it culminates anyway in this sort of claiming claiming your throne as as you've described it, but the sort of the self actualization, and really holding a real big space for self, a soft yes. space for self. And I think about um, compassion for self. I think about forgiveness for self. One of the things you spoke about earlier that I kind of just wanted to go back to just real quick when you were talking about that person who did all that um, claim your throne work 
in Chicago and had ultimately were, was able to purchase a, a jacket for themselves, et cetera. One of the things that came to mind as you were speaking about them at some point taking on characteristics as a perpetrator themselves. And so at varying points in that traumatic experience or over the lifespan, I think we can see people being um, maybe a bystander in their own experience. And for in this context, just for explored, um, explanatory purposes, I would use the term victim, right? But so that in one moment, you may be the victim, in another moment, you may be the perpetrator. And at times, you might be the bystander in that experience yourself. And so I really appreciate how you also spoke about that, because I think sometimes people may not see themselves, right? You may have had your boundaries violated for such an incredible time that you do not realize that you too now violate boundaries. And so I think it's it's really beautiful as you spoke about all the varying kinds of work you do and, and that you offer it to both male and females. And it can start in youth and it can culminate into adulthood, but really sort of this emotional regulation and um, access in the quality of life I think is ultimately what it culminates into accessing the quality of life that feels really good, where there's healthy boundaries. I feel like I'm, I can emotionally self-regulate and self-soothe, stand on my own two emotional feet, yes. right? Um, whole space for myself, <clears throat> excuse me, and pursue and pursue and access the quality of life that I've dreamt of. Um, so really out, out, out learning and on unlearning some of the things that might have kept them captive. And so just so beautifully and eloquently, you explained so well. And I think to the tail end, you talked about the different sort of um, care access points, whether it be individual or whether it be group. And I know you talked about some of the limitations that we have right now mm -hmm. conducting group, but you have a beautiful group that um, I guess we can maybe briefly speak to. I know it's on Monday evenings yeah. at 6 p.m. And so maybe you can briefly talk about yeah what that looks yes. like and I guess there's still space for people to join so maybe even after they learn about your work and what's happening in that group they may be more inclined to join you so can you talk briefly about that sure we have a lovely group um yes. and it just started so people could still you know we still are leaving space for people to join um so this is dbt dialectical behavior therapy it's another evidence-based treatment that has been proven to work in, in, in many different ways. Uh, it has proven to decrease suicide ideation. It has been proven to decrease alcohol abuse. It has been proven to decrease other self-harm type behaviors that come along with uh, life experiences. People sometimes turn it into themselves. So dialectical, dialectical behavior therapy, I'll just call it DBT, okay, is um, composed of four, um, I won't say modules, but four sections. It, it is the first and probably the most important piece of it is the mindfulness piece. So now mindfulness is a big catchphrase these days. You know, those of us who've, who've been engaging in meditation or breathing activities or other types of these activities for decades, you know, it's, it's fun to see that it's become such a part of popular culture. So what is mindfulness? So mindfulness skills undergird everything else in this dbt group so dbt this is this particular group is what we call a skill building group as opposed to a processing group so no one is expected to come and share you know their guts out about traumas or experiences although sharing is welcome and i will regulate it so that it's appropriate and and hopefully people aren't triggered but it's not a processing group it's a skill building group to help people um, be more comfortable in their skin and be able to move in the world in a healthier 
way. And so, as I said, it's undergirded by mindfulness skills. So what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is simply, it's not sitting in a corner and going home for an hour or living on a mountaintop and doing that. Mindfulness is simply um, paying attention to the present moment right now in real time and allowing yourself a non-judgmental experiencing of it. So I'll give an example. If I was coaching someone to manage their anxiety attacks or panic attacks, I would try to help them uh, experience it in a way that I don't want them to like white or brown knuckle their way through it, right? Try to hold on tight until it's over. You just, I coach people to be more scientist than judge and just observe. So it's like that you're sitting by the bank of a river and the water is just, current is just flowing by. And, and the panic attack, if you just observe rather than, this is the 10th one this week, or yay, this is only the first one I've had this week, because that's attaching to it positively and negatively. You don't want to do that. More scientists than judge. So you just say, okay, heart rate is increasing, starting to sweat. I know I'm going to feel like it's a heart attack, but I know it's just an anxiety attack. You know, you just sort of, you be your own sports commentator about your panic attack inside your head and let it flow. And ironically, just allowing it to move through, it, it makes for, um, oftentimes makes them less intense and, and allows them to move through faster than if you're holding on, trying to just get through it and, you know, without dying this time. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that being mindful about it is experiencing it fully. So again, mindfulness isn't only experiencing good things fully. It's experiencing whatever's happening in the moment fully. Good, neutral, challenging, whatever. Okay. And so um, so we teach specific skills around that, teach people how to do a mindful check-in. A guided meditation is an important part of that. And believe it or not, and even breathing, there have been there's research that demonstrates that establishing a breathing practice, which could mean taking 10 breaths once a day in the morning before you start your day, 10 belly breaths, um, extends life by up to seven years. I mean, that's a simple, wow. basic. that's not like hippie, wow. dippy, hoo-ha stuff. This is <clears throat> science, right? Because it changes your brain chemistry. And what happens when you meditate or you breathe or you do these things, you, you know how there's a the path to the beach, right? It's worn down because everybody walks on the same path. We actually have grooves in our brain and you can, we have an, our automatic pilot is one groove that our brain is accustomed to. Whenever I'm triggered by thus and so, I go into a panic attack. So my brain has learned that when I experience that particular thing that, that upsets me, it's time for a panic attack. Well, you can teach your brain that when you experience that particular upsetting thing, it's not time for a panic attack. It's time to relax and calm down. Mm -hmm. And the way you do it is by establishing a practice. And by that, I mean, you do it every day. And you know, establishing a new habit isn't easy. It's not gonna happen every day for the first bit, but if you continue and you, you persevere and it becomes a practice, then you make a new groove in your brain instead of that other path to the beach that everybody goes on and that your brain is used to going trap traversing you're going to go to the new one because you're gradually chaining your brain that there's a new automatic pilot and so it's neuroscience like i said it sounds like hippy dippy hoo-ha stuff to a lot of people like i'm not into that crap but guess what it's science and it works and there's some reason why it has existed for 
for thousands of years in other cultures, right? So yeah. mindfulness undergirds, and there's ground, there's all kinds of things that we talk about, teach people how to be mindful. And there's millions of ways you can do it. You can be mindful taking a shower by feeling the water on your skin, by not thinking about what you have to do when you get out of the shower. Instead, you enjoy the warm water on your skin. You enjoy the fact, the smell of the, 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 your favorite um, uh, body wash that you're using. You enjoy the soft feel of the towel when you get out and dry yourself off. You know, this is experiencing your shower in a mindful way versus, okay, when I get out of the shower, you know, then I got to like, I got to feed the dog. And then I got to, you know, I got to, I got to make sure the lunches are packed. I started putting it together last night, but I got to do the rest of it. All of that stuff. All that busyness that is actually makes us less productive. So mindfulness. Okay. So mindfulness undergirds everything. And then there are three distinct uh, uh, schools or areas of skills that we teach people. So the first one, uh, I like to start with distress tolerance skills. So what is that? Being able to tolerate those triggers, being able to tolerate that annoying conversation with your mother, because once again, she demeaned you or did not celebrate the raise you just got at work or the promotion you just got at work and it hurt your feelings again, even though you're in your 30s and it's been happening your whole life. So, you know, distress whatever distresses of the traffic me i'm a road rager okay i don't really road rage but inside myself inside my car i'm yelling because you know i'm a new yorker driving where i drive and it's like you know so i better out than in so anyway i get it out so that's my distress so the formula for that is distract leads to relaxation leads to better coping so if you distract yourself not with doing drugs or having a drink, but distract yourself with things that are affirming and self-validating, whatever works for you. Maybe you like to go for beach walks. Maybe you like to go lay down. Maybe you, a lot of my young people, like my teenagers, they say, oh, I just put on like a TikTok video. They look at videos. You know, Other people like to listen to music. Other people like to hug their animals. So um, distracting yourself with, and, and there are pages of things to do to distract yourself in a positive manner that I share with people in the group. And then once you are distracted from whatever is distressing you, you can then relax and you relax by using some of the mindfulness skills. Maybe you breathe, maybe you sit down, maybe you take a time out, maybe you go in the bathroom and splash some water on your face. Everybody's toolkit is going to be different. And that allows you to cope with whatever it is, which then sort of changes your mind. So, and then there's this piece of the distress tolerance skills, which is called radical acceptance. So I love the concept of radical acceptance because radical acceptance does not connote approval. It just means that you accept the reality of whatever the it is. Mm -hmm. So it might be that um, you accept the reality that your spouse is never gonna pick his or her clothes up off the floor and put them in the hamper. You know, if you have radical acceptance around that, then what could happen? You won't get annoyed every single time it happens. You might get annoyed sometimes. Okay, we're human. You won't um, have an argument, have to have an argument about it. You won't have to mention to them over and over again, could you please just put your clothes in the hamper? If you have radical acceptance around that, then you just like, that's your movie. I would prefer you didn't, but I, and I don't like it, but I get that that's the reality in our home at this particular point in time. And so radical acceptance around a lot of things, I gave a sort of an innocuous um, example, but 
So radical acceptance is a really important um, concept that we teach. And, and so that is acknowledging without criticism or judgment, again, just like letting that panic attack flow through without attaching to it, no criticism, no judgment, no praise even, just seeing it, seeing things for what they are. And then, um, so there's different ways we do that. We teach people how to do what we call self-soothe. Uh, Nisha, you mentioned that before. Mm -hmm. Very important skill. And again, it's different for everyone. So my goal in this group that we're doing is to help everyone create their own customized toolkit that when they encounter troubling experiences or challenging experiences, they can pull from their toolkit something that they already know works for them, something that they've already begun to establish as a habit. And so something that also starts making that new groove in the brain so that the automatic pilot becomes something that's more validating and less destructive, okay? And so then the other, the next piece is emotional regulation skills. We touched on that a little bit. So you can recognize your, it involves recognizing your emotions. You'd be surprised at how many people cannot name what they, I feel good, I feel bad. Anger is easy for people to get to because it's so obvious to be seen, but do people know that really underneath all anger is really some level of pain about something, is something that hurts? And so that's the softer emotion underneath the anger, which is easiest for us to access, and that's the part that comes out. So we teach people to recognize their own emotions as they're feeling them. We teach people to um, um, uh, detach from it because when you can recognize it and sort of assess it then you can detach from it in a way that helps you manage it and then you go back to your mindfulness skills and your self-soothing skills so you learn how to what helps you feel better and then you do it establishing a practice is again if you don't do it because this brings me to one point i wanted to say about any type of therapy most of the work is done outside of session mm -hmm. people often have the misconception that you know, me and my therapist, we got it going on and we have a great session, but then when they step outside of the room, if they don't implement the insights, the new skills, then nothing in their life is gonna change. You know, maybe a little piece of it will change internally, but if you don't establish it with different actions and behavior and even ways of thinking, then things aren't gonna change. And so I just wanted to put that out there. That's, that's really important. Like the work is done outside of session. The session is just a tweaking session. And then you go and you take it and run with it. And those are the clients who get the most out of therapy. So, okay, so back to uh, emotional regulation skills. So once you reduce your sort of cognitive and physical vulnerability to out of control emotions, so what happens? People say, I got so angry, my hands were shaking. Or some people get so angry that they cry. Or, or people get so sad that, you know, you, you just can't think of anything else because you just feel so badly in your own self and in your own body. So there are physiological reactions, there's emotional reactions. And once you, you can reduce your vulnerability to them being out of control by using these new tools, we teach you every step along the way, then that allows you to um, have uh, optimal problem solving. So you can then go ahead and create solutions instead of being like, like a pinball in the pinball machine and just be going with wherever your emotions are taking you. So we call that um, wise mind. So wise mind, if anybody's a Trekkie, the original Star Trek, yes, I know, aging myself again or dating myself again. So Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock. So Mr. Spock, the Vulcan, all logic, Captain Kirk, the whatever, American, all emotion, all out there, right? 
but together they ran that ship and you know the television show but it's a television show but it really demonstrates how you need both and how one without the other imagine if you were only ruled by your emotions for every single thing that'll put you in a pickle or if you're only ruled by logic and you don't and you discount emotions you don't allow yourself to feel them or work with them that is an unproductive way of living as well. So wise mind is sort of, you think of two concentric circles, not even concentric, but intersecting circles. So that piece where they intersect, that's wise mind. That's where you learn to balance the emotions with the cognitive, with the thinking part, with the logic. And that makes for a healthy, productive way to move in the world. Mm -hmm. So then, and then, and we teach you again, specific skills, teach you how to be in wise mind. And then, um, then the third, the fourth piece is interpersonal relationship skills, which again, Nisha, you touched on already. And those are the skills where you notice your feelings and reactions. You learn how to talk to a partner or a friend or anyone about something that's troubling you. We teach people about using I statements. You observe, you monitor yourself for what we call passive aggressive behaviors. Oh, I didn't mean to burn your favorite shirt after you had an argument with me you know so it's like yes you did on some level yes you did and so recognizing that in yourself and others again helps you um know what you want helps you to ask for what you want in a productive way and so the these you can negotiate conflict better with others and conflict doesn't have to mean a big fight conflict could mean i want chinese food i want oxtails and figuring out how you're going to balance that right and so and then of course being able to say no healthy boundaries mm, big piece in any in every life in every realm of life really important part and so um even saying like i said oh that's really important but i need an hour to sort of just let it sink in can we come back and talk about it later so teaching people these kinds of skills. So with these four things, mindfulness or distress tolerance, emotional regulation and interpersonal skills undergirded by mindfulness, that helps people create, better create the lives that they want for themselves. And this is not specifically addressing trauma or any adverse experiences that people have had, but peripherally, it addresses symptoms of depression. It addresses symptoms of anxiety. It addresses symptoms of of uh, being a trauma survivor and the way those ugly ways that it shows up in your life because you learn new skills. And so uh, this is what I call working from the outside in too. So you're working new skills and address the inside out is sort of the processing, the trauma processing or processing whatever your experiences are. And the outside in, when you work in both ways, then you have a holistic way of addressing whatever is going on with you. And so, as I said, in this group that we're doing, we are, it is not a trauma processing group, and we do have other processing groups that people can join if they're interested. And we will be doing some more of those. But this particular group, the DBT group, I think it's gonna be, I'll try to make it as fun as possible, as much fun as possible while we're learning. And it shouldn't be too, too uncomfortable for people because we're not delving into the, like the guts of, um, of experiences so much. Does that help? Oh, one thing I do want to say about group, people often think I have to talk in group. I have to say something. I have to share my guts. No, you don't. You know, in this group, it's, it's, it's better if you can get comfortable with your group members. And we do establish group rules for safety and confidentiality and privacy, all of that. Of course, that's a given. And, and if you can participate fully, you'll get way much 
way more out of it, but you can also get out of it what works for you. If you're a shy person, if you're not comfortable yet, if it takes you make maybe like three of the eight sessions to get yourself a little more comfortable, that's okay. There's space for all of that because there's space for each of us, including me, to be who we are within this group because we're creating our own community here together. And we will, um, I'm even gonna talk with group members about whether they wanna have an accountability partner in group to help them make sure that they do the homework, that they're practicing the exercises in between and they can bounce ideas off of. So we're gonna talk about that um, this evening. I mean, Monday evening uh, when we next meet. So, because I wanted to wait, because there are some new people coming in probably, and we can welcome a few more as well, if anyone's interested. And so once we have everybody, then we can sort of uh, set the structure and go. And then you'll only have missed one. And I will, I'm going to part of the session on Monday is review of what we went over and, and um, me eliciting um, people's uh, reactions to the experience of the group, because I really wanna tailor this group to what each individual is bringing as much as possible within the realm of the skill building. Okay, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> you are fine, you are fine. I'm just, I'm, I'm so excited and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, so much that people can get from whether it's a group, whether deciding to work with you one-on-one, -on -one. I just think so much you have shared and, and I'm really, really happy that we did meet the therapists, right? Because I feel almost like sometimes, you know, people might peruse a website and go, oh yeah, I guess, or they may may um, be overwhelmed by sort of all the acronyms as you talked about DBT or CPT uh -huh. and all of the jargon, right? Mm -hmm. and, and not really fully be able to conceptualize so what does this really mean? And, you know, and can't really fully envision, you know, what, what being a therapeutic relationship would look like. Yeah. I think especially here in the Virgin Islands, as I think about, um, you know, some spaces where there might be frequent therapy users, where therapy probably was normalized and pretty accessible even in childhood. So mm -hmm. sometimes people are like, well, yeah, I went to therapist when my parents were having a divorce. And so, you know, coming to therapy this go around in their lives as an adult might not be as uh, threatening and as intimidating um, for some, or it might be. Mm -hmm. maybe they had a traumatic experience a small t trauma back mm -hmm. then and you know maybe where that person was maybe too too much aligned with the parent and you know didn't support the child in expressing the needs and that sort of thing um and then you have a community where i would say you know that i'm i would say is probably a little bit more familiar here in the virgin islands where um you know for the most part people may go to a, a clergy member and which is very mm -hmm. healthy and acceptable um, and at the same time not really be sure how to make space for therapy and God or therapy and a priest or therapy yeah. and a pastor or those sorts of things. And so I think, you know, what you are doing is not oversharing is really kind of allowing people to envision for themselves how therapy may be helpful and, and you know, what they can expect in a therapeutic relationship and also more specifically with the group. I mm -hmm. want to circle back on a few things um, only just just to cement it just one final time while I have your attention because you are such an important person and and working with you and talking with you is is a privilege that I even have this Sunday morning and uh, so so yes I wanted to kind of go back to a few things and I made a few notes um, 
East and West, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about mindfulness and you kind of talked about, you know, how it's sort of this new agey almost thing and it's sort of popping up in, in a very secular way in all these spaces in the world. But as you spoke of it, I think about how mindfulness and how these other practices um, have been a part of communities and cultures for such a long time and really have maybe been more mainstreamed now in our community. Um, but, but it's really been something that's um, only been popular popularized as of recent in our parts of the world, but that it's been a healing modality for a long time. I especially love, as you spoke about, um, you know, the neurological things that are happening in the brain and the neuro pathways and, and creating new pathways within the brain. And so people are not only able to think about it in terms of like, well, I'm going to a therapist and talking, but sometimes the work isn't as visible, right? Sometimes it's a whole lot of things happening inside that's not visible to the naked eye. And so, yeah, you might then have that person from Chicago who comes back now and who's living, you know, and leading a life that's so very different from the person you knew back then. And, and, and it's oftentimes because these neuro pathways are, are being created um, and it's not as time as visible. So I also wanted to kind of put a, a just put a, like a, a note to say or pin to say that it takes time to also see and experience the changes in yourself and allowing um, realistic, helping folks set realistic expectations around what that process is like. Because I know you talked at one point about the Chicago person and you mentioned it's been four years and at some point, right, you're seeing all those things. It doesn't mean that you don't get, um, that there is an insight, right? But insight doesn't necessarily lend itself to application right away. Um, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to much of anything. It might just be the awareness like, oh, that's a thing. Now I have, a, I can recognize it. Or maybe I can even identify a different emotion rather than just anger, right? Yes. Maybe I can identify some of the other emotions. And so as you spoke, it really made clear that therapy is a co-discovering journey that people will, you know, journey with you on as you journey with them. Yeah. Um, and that it, it requires sort of a sensitive uh, sensitivity to sort of their own needs and, and sort of kind of the insight that you help them to cultivate mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of bringing in that East and West thing. And I just wanted to make clear that these things aren't new, right? What you're talking about, it's just more um, widely accepted now. Yes. That also brought to my attention. And I guess when you spoke about TikTok and you talked about distracting, mm -hmm. because I think when we think about some of these, um, you know, social media platforms, I think we're having, especially in a world as we are so remote and isolated now, right? In mm -hmm. our respective pods due to COVID, I think we are really having to um, integrate space um, for these things. So some of my, um, I would say younger clients, it's always so very interesting when, when someone say, oh, well, yeah, you know, I saw this thing on Instagram and this therapist was talking about something. And I'm like, yes, girl, that therapist <laughs> is right, right? And, and I appreciate very much how we can integrate these, um, these platforms into, yeah. into healing. And it makes me think about apps and all kinds of other things, right? Which I know is something that you advocate that your clients utilize to kind of Absolutely. that experience of wellness outside of the therapeutic space. So you spoke about that hour of therapy, and then you talked about all the things that's expected to happen and those persons who apply themselves, whether application and just holding awareness of self, holding awareness of your own feelings and holding space for that, or application by setting a boundary with a spouse or setting a boundary with a family member. I think you're kind of talking about all these things. And I just really want to, you know, make clear that 
it's such an integrative space and there's such great value for all these things. And I especially love that you talk about TikTok because mm-hmm. I think sometimes, um, you know, people have come to, and these things can be very distracting, right? So I, I'm not minimizing that, but I mm-hmm. think we have, um, for lack of a better word, we almost criminalized a lot of these things where we're mm-hmm. sort of like, well, you know, you shouldn't be, and you're spending too much time and all these kinds of things. And a healthy dose of distraction is very important. Yes. And so it, it could be TikTok for someone. It could be gaming for another person. So I just want to honor all those other kinds of things that people may be doing that sometimes it might get a bad rep, right? Mm-hmm. And it's different if it's an escapism, right? Where they're using mm-hmm. it just to escape something that they're going through. Yes. Another thing, when they're kind of taking care of themselves in that moment, because that's mm-hmm. all they can do. So yes. I really wanted to talk about that. And um, I wanted to lastly, um, and I guess think about, you know, we're talking about DBT, CBT, we're talking about um, claiming your throne, we're talking about sexual trauma, we're talking about sort of the microaggressions within group. And um, really what I what I wanted to kind of quickly mention as, as we kind of think about all the spaces you've occupied, even in your professional career as a dancer, is how they're just honoring that there are so many other healing forms of um, there's so many other forms of healing that's accessible to us and really not limiting it to this conversation that we're having right now that's really a therapeutic one and and really just having that you know that's the center of what we're doing right now but I think um, about people who are doing all sorts of rituals and I really want to just make sure that we widen um, this conversation to make space for whatever healing modalities people feel comfortable with Um, and, and, you know, I just kind of wanted to kind of just quickly put a plug. I had a client, um, recently who is local to the Virgin Islands and was talking about some beautiful things that, that was being done on St. John and talking about, um, you know, there was a, a loss in the family recently. And, um, I, it occurred to this person that they were grieving and coping and just doing incredible work. But only when we stepped into the therapeutic space, this mm. client and I, were they able to articulate some of the things that they were doing. And I, I thought, I said, wow, you know, I hope this is really just one of validation, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes, you know, we hold sort of, especially when we're thinking about science. So I'm very careful, but especially when we're thinking about science and we think about, um, how that there's this great onus and power given to sort of that um, way of thinking and organizing thought that I just really want to make sure when we think about bottom up kind of approaches as well, the ones that are not as visible that may be a little bit more taboo in sort of um, other communities that we kind of normalize that space for folk as well. And sometimes, um, you know, because we are therapists and we're co-discovering, sometimes all we're doing is validating that inner knowing that you already have. So I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that at all, but I just think it's important to hold a space yes. for all I the healing right now and what That's wellness right. looks and like outside of this space. That's right. Wellness is, is a broad, encompasses a broad range of things, just as you said. And may I just say something that you said about your client and then when you said before, it made me think, I want to say this. Um, I We are strength-based therapist yes which means because I was thinking about my client in Chicago and I was thinking oh I forgot to say how much I admired how much she had accomplished mm-hmm. but when I met her at age 34 she owned seven homes you know with the way she grew up she owned seven homes she was working in the middle of working on her MBA 
she was single parenting, raising, you know, three boys in a violent relationship. And, you know, that she addressed that eventually. But, you know, I also, and intelligence and insight, I had great admiration for her and her for her commitment to the process. So I want to say, I describe myself as a postmodern therapist, I guess, which means that I am human in the room with you. Yes. As a human. I'm not on high sitting here saying, well, you're this label, you're this thing, this name, and you have to do what I tell you to do. That is not my approach at all. In fact, some of the richest sessions I've had were sessions where I call that my clients have given me therapy. Like they might say something to me and I'll, it might be like, I, my triggers are child predators. I just, you know, my clients laugh at me. They're like, we know, we know how angry you are about that and how like, I don't kill bugs, but I would like, <laughs> I, I'm like, yeah, we need to need to eliminate these people. And so, you know, as they come to know me, they, they, they're able to laugh at me and with me. And, and so sometimes there are sessions where I get therapy from the client. I don't mean that, you know, I don't share my problems and they tell me, you know, like that, but that um, the relationship is fluid. I have a great deal of respect and liking mm -hmm. for my clients. You know, some, whether Carl Rogers, unconditional positive regard. Mm -hmm. And so I have that. And um, you almost have to, to be able to, you're like, I see all the wounds, but I see all the strengths as well. And a large part of my work is, uh, the validation that you're talking about, Nisha, because it comes in small ways, even if it's in the smallest of ways. Absolutely. You didn't have that fourth drink. And it's not like, you know, I'm not talking about raise your children. Everybody's a winner. Everybody gets a certificate. No, I'm not saying that extreme, but I'm saying, depending on where the person is, validation is really important for all of us. Mm -hmm. And that's me recognizing, you know, my posture is you have everything you need to heal yourself. My job is to clarify and facilitate and to walk with you on this journey. And that's what I want to do. Now I do, I will self-disclose that I'm pretty bossy and I have to like curb that in myself. <laughs> it's genetic. What can I say? Everybody in my family's like that. So family of origin, remember? So, but I do, but I do think it's really important that we emphasize that we do, we do have a strength-based approach as opposed to a deficit-based approach. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Yes, absolutely. So it's, 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 yeah, it's wonderful. And, and again, like you said, incorporating the East meets West, incorporating um, uh, um, African diaspora sensibilities in what we're doing, um, incorporating our um, spirituality. And, and I include everything that religiosity under that people describe themselves as I'm a Christian. Other people describe themselves as saying I'm spiritual. You know, some people attend church. Some people say, I don't need church for a building. I have my own relationship with God. And uh, my colleagues are like, oh, you talk about uh, spirituality? And I'm like, yeah, because guess what? Holistic. I'm interested. One, I'm interested in the entire person. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in you. You're my client. I want to know more about you. The more I know about you, the better I can help you. Mm -hmm. And the better I can tailor to help you get to where you want to get. Uh, with you sort of being in the, the client being in the driver's seat in terms of our general aim, right? Mm -hmm. We're the subject matter experts to help people get there, but the clients are really the ones we go. You're not doing my goals for you. You're working on your goals for you. And my goals for you might even be different. And I've had experiences where, you know, like several months in, 
I'm so excited when a client says, okay, I want to work on this now. And I'm inside, I'm jumping up and down saying, yay, good, because I've seen that. And now they're ready to tackle that. So, but again, it's about being respectful of the person, recognizing the strengths, being strength-based, pulling from all traditions within our ethical, uh, while maintaining our ethical responsibility to provide services that are within the scope of our practice. Mm-hmm. But, you know, especially for people of color, I find that spirituality is very important. Even the ones I have will say, I'm an atheist. I'm like, okay, you're an atheist. It's okay. That's not my belief. It doesn't matter that it's not my belief. I respect you being able to be where you are and we'll work with you based on where you are, not where I am or where I want you to be, you know? Okay, yeah. anyway, sorry. No, so that, no, that's, no. Yeah. So like combining, like holistic, yes. integrated. Pulling from everything that relates. Yes. And so again, this opportunity, I mean, is so beautiful. I mean, there's so much I know about you and it's always so um, wonderful to learn more. Um, I, I, you know, I was trying to think what was new and I don't know that a whole lot is new because I've, I've, I've known you for so long now, um, but it's always so beautiful to experience. I mean, just even the joy that you have that radiates um, as you're talking about the work and talking about how you wish to help and be of service and, and something that stuck with me that I think would be a nice kind of place where we park the conversation for today um, as we start to think about closing out our time together um, is that, you know, all of this is happening through you. And, and so I appreciated that. That was something you said much earlier along in our dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I hear this, you know, around being strength-based, you know, journeying with clients, helping to facilitate and hold safer space, um, and just really being a conduit is really what I what I hear, and allowing whatever needs to happen to move through you. And so you come to this work, um, you know, as a blank canvas, hoping as much as you can show up, right, with your own being, um, but but holding holding an opportunity for folks to see themselves. Um, with a compassionate gaze and journey with them wherever they may go. And, and as you said, there might be things that you see for them that they don't yet see for themselves, mm-hmm. um, but just allowing them to be exactly where they are, meeting people where they are. Yeah. This was such, I mean, I could have never, um, <laughs> I could have never <laughs> choreographed anything better than this. It's such I'm so a- enjoy talking with you, you know, yeah, we're, yeah. we're so busy. We don't have time to do this. <laughs> No, yeah, so. no, we, we don't have time not to do like, yeah, yeah, not not as much as we'd like. But I think maybe at some point, um, you know, maybe at some point, we'll kind of be thinking about how to create more of these opportunities. And also maybe for professionals, right? Because I think we're right now focusing on clients um, in, mm-hmm. in sort of, you know, the f- family relations, relationships and the home and the community. But I think really, at some point, we may be talking again, and maybe more about um, professional spaces Love training, training. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and maybe even some supervision I think because I think also as I'm listening to you and I think about um, the clinical expertise here in our community um, and things that are happening at work I think I can be thinking readily right how folks are dealing with all the pandemic stress and all of this mm-hmm. that there might be some leadership person who watches this and thinks about huh there might be an opportunity to, to sort of invite Dr. Judith into that space um, to do larger sort of stress management, coping, that sort of work with a group. 
and or even um, the opportunities naturally that could come with uh, helping to train people in some of this work. Maybe you'll go ahead and do some trademarking around Own Your Throne. Yes, I need to. You know, going ahead and do, yeah, I almost said like, oh, don't put I've all done that. The, I know, I've done the informal trademarking. Yeah. I'm like, don't put all that sauce on. Yeah. Saucy, and and I'm and I'm thinking, you know, maybe there needs to be some some trademarking around that because as yes. you talked about, all of those things coming together, um, you know, it's it's such a beautiful opportunity for folks, but it only comes with years of wisdom. It only comes with years of integrating all of who you are, even as a professional artist and dancer, having traveled the world and really kind of taking on, you know, this opportunity to then now sit as a therapist. Um, and really honoring all the parts of yourself that has culminated to exactly where you are now. So I can't thank you enough for spending your morning with me. I hope you are able to get out on that sunny beach side and yes. enjoy, enjoy fully your day. And I hope uh, this was a beautiful invitation for more people to be interested in that DBT now that they better understand oh, what I look like. Yeah, yeah, welcome. You are fully You're welcome. That's right. Yeah. And or maybe some individual slots if, if you That's have right. space, because I know you are a very high in demand, busy woman, you know, so. And the but, couples group that we have coming up again. Yes. Short term couples group. That's going to be a nice one as well. Oh, yes. Yes. Thank you for and the mindfulness meditation. Yes. 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 There's so there's lots of offerings at Boyan. Lots of offerings. There's all these spaces for people to kind of engage from, you know, from the seat of the comfort of their homes, wherever they're at in the world. And I think what uh, the pandemic has done is really um, created so much more access to things that we otherwise may not have access to. So I hope folks take up the opportunity while virtual uh, platforms could seem sometimes not personal and, and sometimes, um, you know, by quite threatening because it doesn't take on the confines of the room. We as a therapist are also likewise dealing with some of those same things. But I think um, just from this natural conversation that you and I have had here today, I think, you know, the energy is felt and I, and I hope that people see that that's exactly the same spiritedness that's in the group spaces. Yes. So thank you so much, Dr. Judith. Um, so happy to speak with you. Yes, as always. And until next time, be well. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Yes, you too. Bye. Bye. It's always such a pleasure to hang out here with you at the Boy and Living Podcast. I hope you found today's episode with Dr. Judith Samuel, Meet the Therapist, just as enlightening as always. Until next time, my friends, be well. <laughs>